this is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Luke chapter 3 verses 27 to 38. It happens to be the reading for the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany in the year C cycle of the lectionary, and it's one of the scripture readings scheduled for February 20, 2022. This passage in Luke's Gospel is a familiar one to anyone who reads Matthew's version of this story. It is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we begin at verse 27, we begin in the middle of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which in this case is the Sermon on the Plain rather than the Mount. And as Jesus moves into verse 27 in Luke chapter 6, we begin to hear Jesus's imperative to those who have been listening to him. Jesus continues this discourse a little bit more directly. He begins in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, so it's clear from the way Luke renders this passage that Jesus is now speaking to those who are immediately in his presence. And he gives them four parallel statements in a row. The first, love your enemies. The second, do good to those who hate you. The third, bless those who curse you. The fourth, pray for those who abuse you. All of these statements are accentuating a nuance of the same kind of truth. And it's about how we're to engage with those who are persecuting or oppressing us. And in this case, the people that Jesus is hearing. The framework here is about being the victim, not the one who inflicts harm. Jesus rarely talks in any of his discourses about what we're to do when we're the ones doing the harm or when we are the victimizer. No, this text is focused around the victim, as often many Jesus' oracles and speeches are focused on. It's focused not on the one who inflicts harm, but upon the one to whom harm is being inflicted. And these are ethical imperatives, these four parallel statements we start with. And these ethical imperatives are not unique to Jesus. Uh, They're used throughout the Roman world by uh, Roman writers, one of Jesus' contemporaries, for example, Seneca, and then later Epicurus. See, the Romans knew these truths that Jesus is talking about well, and they were manifestations of public mercy within Roman culture. But what makes things different in this text is that when the Romans would talk about loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, they were often referenced to people who already were in power. So imagine, if you will, in a broader Roman culture, that if you are a Roman person with some kind of authority or power or wealth or influence, you would love your enemies as a magnanimous way of, you know, describing how awesome you are as a leader and as a figure in the public eye. But Jesus takes these statements that are often uh, given as some kind of ethical encouragement to those with Roman influence, and he turns it on in and says, for those of you listening to me today, I want you to embody these words even in your own powerlessness. Jesus invites those without power to take these kinds of actions. So even though these truths are common within the Roman world, Jesus encourages those who think they actually have no power to understand that these are the things that give them power. 
the capacity to love enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you. Jesus then takes these statements in the abstract in verses 27 and 28, and in verse 29, he makes them immediately concrete. He says in verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from that person. Give to anyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. These are concrete examples of what Jesus is describing, and as we move into this part of the text, beginning at verse 29, we move from kind of a a Roman framework of our ethical behavior to turn to a very Semitic or Jewish way of life. The notion of turning the other cheek has to do with being struck first on the right cheek, which is a, a great form of insult in the Jewish world, and you're to offer the left also. So even after someone has done the worst thing to you, you're to offer them even what's next. Jesus goes on to talk about how if someone takes your cloak away, in other words, your outermost garment, then you're to give them the next layer down of your garment, which is your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. These concrete acts of mercy, of love, of affection, are powerful acts that manifest the grace of God. And Jesus sums it up in something we know very well in verse 31. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. It's called the golden rule. And oftentimes this is ascribed as one of Jesus' most unique sayings throughout the entire uh, Gospel of Luke and in all of the Gospels. Actually, the statement is not unique to the Christian faith. This saying of treat others the way you want them to treat you was well known within Roman and Jewish circles. But usually they would frame the rule in the negative. In other words, don't treat others the way you don't want to be treated. Jesus turns it into an affirmative. He makes it positive. And it's the practice that's designed to epitomize Christian living. This really takes us to an understanding of the key passageway in these early verses in today's text. And the key passageway is this. In every situation, we always have a choice. This passage threads a fine line. It, it's about persecution and oppression. Now, it's, it's not about criminal acts, and it's not about enabling abusers. There's plenty of other texts in the Bible about that. Jesus tells us to, to leave a town and wipe the dust off our feet if we're not welcome there. Jesus tells us to not cast our pearls before swine. Don't give what's holy to the dogs. There's plenty of texts that, tells us, that tell us how to not enable the worst practices of other people. But this text stretches us through the use of a little bit of what's called hyperbole. And hyperbole simply means this. It's a deliberate form of exaggeration to make the point that we are not passive. We are to be active. And our active um, posture means that we embrace acts of generosity, of mercy, of grace, Note the absence in this text of any form of retribution or revenge or any human notions of justice. Jesus kind of turns all that on end. What we're saying here is this, is that God's economy runs on a different kind of fuel. It's not about right, wrong, and justice and judgment. In every moment, we have a choice to make. And Jesus is offering to us a different kind of choice that might be a witness of God's grace in a different kind of way. 
as the text moves on in verse 32, we, we begin to understand that what Jesus is inviting us to is something that's not a transaction. Now, sometimes the choices we make are motivated by our own sense of gain. And this section of Jesus' teaching is about a, a, a truth called reciprocity. In other words, um, doing good in the hopes of gaining something from someone else. These verses, verses 32 to 36, are about confronting our practice of always wanting to be owed something, you know, tit for tat, quid pro quo, that we're going to do something for someone else so that they can then do something for us. Jesus pushes us even further than these opening verses in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and onward. It's not just about what we do, loving our enemies. It's about why we do it. Note the repeating statements here. Again, Jesus starts out in verse 31. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Uses these two parallel examples in a row. And the message here is that there's nothing remarkable about those actions. There's nothing unique about them. There's nothing that stands out. It's simply treating people around us like a transaction. I mean, after all, this is the way of doing business. We barter, we trade, we negotiate, we swap. Jesus makes clear that keeping the ethic that he just talked about, loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, cannot be about your own gain. And if it is about your own gain, it actually voids it. And what Jesus is encouraging his listeners to hear is this, is that this is not a, a dyad of reciprocity. And here's what I mean by that. It's like, me and then one other person. So I'm going to do something good for another person so they do something good for me. That's a dyad. There's two people involved in that transaction. What Jesus is helping us understand is that every action we take is actually a triad. There's actually three people in the transaction. There's me, the other person, and there's God. That God is in the transaction. God is in the relationships, the way we connect to other people. Jesus goes on and says, if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same thing. In other words, there's nothing remarkable about any of those things. If we walk through our human existence engaging with every other human being under the notion that it's just the two of us there, we've missed something. Jesus goes on in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. Loving your enemies and doing good and expecting nothing in return is a different way of living. And, and what Jesus is telling us here is here is that in doing so, you're acting just like God. That's the triad, the third person in the transaction. You become a witness of God's mercy, a witness of God's grace. Jesus tells us in verse 35 that our reward will be great and you will be children of the most high for God, God's self is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, he says. Note, it, that, note, note the text doesn't say act, it says be. It doesn't say act merciful just as your father acts merciful. Notice the verbs of being here. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. This is the key passageway here for us. Yet Christian living 
points to a radically different way of being human. That our behaviors and practices are often formed about how we transact with others. You give me this and I will give you that. It's the way we buy groceries. It's elemental. But oftentimes we treat so many of the other sophisticated and more meaningful things in life in the exact same way. We treat love in the same way. I will give you this love if you give me that. I will give you this justice if you will give me that justice. Our lives are often formed by what satisfies our own pain and our own needs. Friends, our actions with others oftentimes point to our own sin. And Jesus invites us to be liberated from that bondage, to embody God's mercy, to pour out grace. Doing so will be the most unusual witness. You will stand out if you choose to love your enemies and to do good and lend expecting nothing in return. You will stand out. I mean, how else do we suppose that people will know of God's graciousness and love just because we told them so? Ultimately, as this text comes to an end in verses 37 and 38, we hear about this task of being merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. And we have to come to a reckoning of what that means for us. Here's four parallels again. Do not judge and you will not be judged. That's the first one. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. That's the second one. Now in the affirmative, pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. This is a common technique within Jewish teaching, writing, and preaching is to use these forms of parallelism together. You have the two negative statements. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. And then you have their antithesis or the antithetical parallelism is what it's called. The two other statements that say just the opposite. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. The penetrating truth here is that dispensing mercy and grace mean surrendering something. It's impossible to hold judgment in one hand and mercy in the other. Jesus is telling us that there's a great danger in becoming a person of judgment or condemnation. In doing so, the bar is set. People become their own judge. The tendency for us in difficult situations is to try to climb to the moral high ground. So in other words, to teach our, to demonstrate to ourselves that we're right and other people are wrong. There's a different kind of reciprocity going on here. There's a different type of return on investment happening in this text. Judgment and condemnation have diminishing returns because it's a defeated cycle. The more we judge others, the more we ourselves are judged by that same standard. Pardon and giving, though, have a multiplying and abundant effect. The pardon we offer to others, the giving we offer to others, this kind of radical generosity that we offer multiplies itself and it has an abundant effect. Jesus describes it with, a, with an agrarian metaphor at the end of verse 38. It's about how wheat is measured. When you go buy grain, grain is not measured by weight in the ancient world. It's measured by volume. So when Jesus says at the end of verse 38 that you will 
they will pour into your lap a good measure. He's talking about a measure of grain. It's pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So imagine it's like a packing a cup of brown sugar. You know, you, when you push down on it, you can get a lot in there. And so the same thing with the wheat is that it's poured into a container, sometimes even to your own apron, and it's pressed down and shaken together so that you maximize the amount of wheat that fits into the same volume. What Jesus is trying to tell us is that there's a there's an overflowing and a multiplication that happens when pardon and giving are offered. But when judgment and condemnation are offered, it's an attrition, it's a diminishing, it's a subtraction. It's, it's something that functions as a life-denying principle, whereas pardon and giving are a life-giving principle. Thus, Jesus can conclude this text by saying the standard that we set for others is the standard we set for ourselves. And the truth is, the standard we set for others, most of the time, we would never set for ourselves. And that takes us really to the key passageway that I'd like to finish with today. That the impulse of God is love. And that's what we hear time and again throughout the scripture, that the impulse of God is love. So, so much of what maligns religion today, writ large, is its addiction to militant and judicial images. Battles, judgments, sentencings, punishments, condemnations, holy war, colonizing. Our sinful impulse always is to draw lines, to make judgments, to dole out punishment, to somehow think that we have the imperial capacity to do so. We do it politically all the time. We do it relationally all the time. We size others up. We categorize others. And we make ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. And what Jesus tells us in this text is that our first impulse must be mercy, generosity, grace. These are the embodiments of love. We're, we're not a doormat for people to abuse. No, not at all. What we're talking about here is what our first impulse is, our first reaction, our first response. When we build communities of faith where everyone's first impulse is to love, we witness to God's greatness. It's no wonder this post-secular world we live in hates us. We have done nothing but dispensed centuries of judgment and because of it, we are judged. It's not just some judgment that happens in some fantasy throne room in heaven. It is a judgment that has happened to us now. And if we as people of faith, if we as the followers of Jesus are going to change that, then we have to change the very nature of what it means to be a church. As Norman Wiersbe says in his book, The Way of Love, that the church in every way must become a school of love. That's it for this week. I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.